0: Chapter 4 of The Black Motor Car. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Black Motor Car by Harris Burland. Chapter 4 A Woman's Vengeance. Fortune favoured Jack Porteous during the next two days, and all his arrangements for leaving the country were carried out satisfactorily. Three hours after he had left Marie de la Moth, he discovered that it was practically certain his defalcations would not be discovered for at least a fortnight, and the terror of immediate detection was removed. He was also lucky in being able to transfer his berth on the Oroquoia to a steamer sailing the next week. But the question of his child presented many difficulties. He had to decide whether to take the boy with him or to leave him behind in the care of some relatives. It was a hard struggle for the wretched man. He was devoted to his son, and he realized that if they were parted at all, the parting would have to be forever. He could not claim the child in after years, "'and brand him with his father's shame. "'For a whole night he fought out a silent battle with himself. "'It was the night before his wife's funeral. "'Her body lay in the next room. "'The lid of the coffin had been screwed down, "'and he knew that he could never see her face again. "'But that face still lived in the features of her child. "'All night he lay awake and stared into the darkness.' but when the cold grey light of morning came, he had made up his mind. His atonement had to be final and complete. His own feelings had to be sacrificed. The child must never see its father again, must never even know its father's name. The day of the funeral was cold and bleak. A bitter wind blew from the north and drove a few scattered flakes of snow across the churchyard. John Porteous listened to the burial service with a face of stone. Not a muscle moved, nor an eyelid quivered. To an ordinary spectator it would have seemed that he was merely a respectful mourner, perhaps some distant relative of the deceased, who had been left some money, and who had attended the funeral as a formal mark of respect the little boy stood by his side with a frightened look in his large grey eyes. He barely understood what had happened, but his childish mind was terrified at the solemnity and gloom of the proceedings. It was only when the coffin had been lowered into the grave, and Porteous had taken a last look at it before the earth had covered it up, that he showed any signs of emotion, and lifting his child up in his arms, he kissed him. No one guessed that he meant that kiss for his dead wife, and that it sealed the resolution of atonement. The only sister of Mrs. Porteous was present at the funeral. Her husband, who held a small living in Essex, had conducted the burial service. Both were staying the night in London. On the way back from the cemetery, the Reverend George behag suggested that the widower and his child should return with them to his vicarage, and spend a week in the country. The change would do both of them good, and would help in some way to take them out of their grief. Mrs. Beehag warmly seconded the proposal. In appearance, she was a plain, hard-featured woman, and her general manner was a little forbidding to those who did not know the kindness of heart, that lay under the somewhat rough exterior she had no children of her own and this had soured her life but all her maternal instincts were roused on behalf of the motherless child who sat beside her in the dark carriage silent with wide open eyes wondering where his mother had gone to yet not daring to ask his father for a solution of the problem that puzzled his little brain john porteous in spite of the mist of bitter and vain regret which clouded his thoughts saw his way clear before him he replied that business would unfortunately keep him in town but that he would be very grateful if they would take charge of his child for a few days as a matter of fact the offer only anticipated his own wishes in the matter he could secretly leave england while his son was away imploring mrs Behag to take the lad under her charge bring him up as her own son and never let him know his father's name when he went to bed that night he fell on his knees and prayed it was many years since he had asked anything of his god but that night he besought forgiveness for his sins and prayed that the punishment might not fall on the head of his innocent child the next morning, the Reverend George B. Hag and his wife arranged to leave Liverpool Street by the 11.40. John Porteous did not go to the bank that morning. He wanted to have the last few hours with the child, whom, in all probability, he would never see again. After breakfast, he took the little lad into his study. The child was excited at the idea of leaving London, and his father was loath to damp his jubilant spirits. However, Porteous found it impossible to smile in that room. He had purposely chosen it as the place to say good-bye. There, at any rate, his purpose would not be likely to falter. The dark shadow that lay upon his face did not escape the keen observation of the large, childish eyes. After a while, the two talked and played together, "'as if nothing out of the common were about to happen. "'But by degrees the laughing smile died from the child's face. "'He threw down his jumping dog, "'the wonderful black animal that reared impulsively on its hind legs "'at the mere pressure of the thumb on an India rubber ball, "'and came to his father's side. "'Where's Mummy?' he said plaintively. "'She's gone away, Dickie,' the wretched man replied. "'When will she come back, Papa?' "'She is not coming back, Dickie.' "'The child clapped his hands. "'Mummy's gone to the country!' he cried joyfully. "'I will see her today!' "'The man did not answer. "'Today, perhaps?' the child repeated a little doubtfully. "'Not to-day, Dickie, but some-day. Mamma has gone on a long journey. "'I told you so before, Dickie. "'Yes, yes, Papa, but, but Uncle George lives an awful way off. "'Miles, miles and miles, perhaps. "'Not to-day, Dickie. "'Some-day you will see her, if you are good. "'But, Papa!' "'The man seized the child and kissed him passionately stifling the question on his lips then he took him on his knee and talked to him about the strange and beautiful things he would see in the country the cows the horses the pigs pigs the child asked excitedly real pigs yes dicky real pigs that grunt so and he imitated the animal to the best of his ability the child's mind was wholly occupied in listening to the delightful sound. The pig represented to him the highest form of animal existence. But even the pig palled at last. He called for other animals, and Porteous gave each of them in turn, running through the whole gamut of the farmyard. He was imitating the quack of a duck when there was a knock at the door and a servant entered. Two gentlemen to see you, sir?' "'I cannot see any one now, Mary,' he replied. "'Ask them to look in again. "'Who are they?' "'They gave no name, sir, but they said their business was important. "'Please ask them who they are and what they want. "'I cannot see any one unless it is on a very urgent matter.' "'The servant left the room.' Porteous walked over to the window and stared idly into the street. Then he suddenly started, and his face grew very white. Two policemen were standing at the corner, half a dozen yards to the right of him. There was nothing unusual in that. But a hundred yards further down the street to the left there was another policeman, and his eyes were fixed on the window. John Porteous moved quickly away, and glanced at his child. Then he laughed. Conscience makes cowards of us all. It was only a mere coincidence. It was not unusual to see policemen in a London street. It is not extraordinary for one of them to be looking at a window. Quack, quack, said the child in a piping voice, and waited anxiously for his father to resume the pleasing sound. The maid re-entered the room, "'The gentlemen say they must see you, sir,' she said. "'They have come on business from the bank.' "'Their names?' he asked. Before the servant could reply, two men pushed past her into the room. They were both strangers. One of them kept his hands in his pockets. "'We should like a word with you, Mr. Porteous,' said one of them, and then looked at the servant you may go mary he replied and take master dick with you no no papa yelled the child he was picked up kicking and screaming and carried forcibly from the room porteous went to his desk and half opened one drawer as though he intended to look for something then he turned round to the two men well gentlemen he said one of them stepped forward and produced a paper. "'John Porteous,' he said, "'I arrest you in the name of the Queen, "'on a charge of embezzlement and forgery. "'Do you wish the warrant read to you?' "'You need not trouble,' Porteous replied. "'I have no doubt that it is in order "'and that you have the authority to act on it, "'unless, indeed, you are playing a practical joke on me. "'Doubtless there has been some mistake.' "'We have a cab outside the door,' the other man said, jingling something in his pocket. "'Will you come quietly, or must—' Porteous stealthily moved his hand towards the half-open drawer, but before he could slip his fingers into it, he found himself covered by a revolver. "'Close that drawer,' the man said sharply. "'The game is up. Edwards, put on the handcuffs.' Porteous closed the drawer and buried his face in his hands. Resistance was useless. He knew now why there were three policemen in the street below him. Edwards advanced towards him, the handcuffs clinking as he walked. Porteous raised his head. "'I will come quietly,' he said. "'My wife was buried yesterday. My little boy is going away with some relatives today.' I expect them here every minute. Let there be no scene. See here? He locked the drawer and threw the key in the fireplace. Very well, sir, the man replied. He had a wife and child of his own. He realized the pathos of the scene, the arrest of the man the day after his wife's funeral. May I write a line to my brother-in-law? Certainly, but I must read it. You can read it. Very well, sir, you can write. John Porteous took a sheet of paper and hurriedly wrote a few lines to the Reverend George Behag. Dear George, I am called away on urgent business. Please take Dicky away with you. We'll write later. Jack Porteous. The sergeant read it and smiled urgent business he repeated ha ha very good my child said Portius in a low voice may i see him certainly edwards ring the bell a minute or two later the servant entered Portius told her to bring the child down again when the boy came his father took him on his knee and kissed him the men turned their backs and examined the pictures on the wall Dicky said, The wretched man, you will have to go in a few minutes. You will be a good boy with your uncle, yes, papa. The child answered, And when will you come later on, Dicky? Later on, in a few days, perhaps. Dicky, goodbye, my boy. Goodbye, papa. Porteous clasped the little child in his arms, kissed him passionately. And set him down on the floor. Now run along, laddie, he said. The boy trotted across the floor, then turned as he reached the door. What do the fowl say, papa? I've forgotten. Cluck, 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 Porteous replied, and cockle doodle doo. Goodbye, Dicky. The boy laughed and clapped his hands, then he vanished. Are you ready, sir? said Sergeant Scott. I am ready. Three weeks later, John Porteous was sentenced to 14 years penal servitude. The judge found no extenuating circumstances. A man of high position had abused the confidence placed in him. The prisoner could not even plead poverty as an excuse. The money had not been taken to save a home from ruin, nor to replace losses incurred in a moment of reckless speculation. It had been taken deliberately and consistently for some purpose, which the prisoner declined to disclose. The judge had no doubt but that the prisoner had been keeping up a second establishment. He laid particular stress on the fact that the anonymous letter, which had put the bank on the scent of the fraud, was in a woman's handwriting. All attempts to discover the writer had failed. This was clearly a case WHERE A MAN'S OWN SIN HAD FOUND HIM OUT, AND WHERE THE WOMAN, FOR SOME UNKNOWN MOTIVE, HAD PERPETRATED A SWIFT AND TERRIBLE REVENGE. THROUGH ALL THE SUMMING UP, JOHN Porteous STOOD WHITE AND SILENT, WITH HIS HANDS ON THE RAIL OF THE DOCK. HE ALONE KNEW WHO HAD WRITTEN THE LETTER, WHICH HAD BROUGHT ALL HIS PLANS CRASHING DOWN ABOUT HIS HEAD. HE DID NOT WISH THE WORLD TO KNOW. From false motives of honour he hugged the secret to his breast. He did not then realise how in the long years to come that secret would eat away the best part of his soul and heart and brain and leave an empty house for all the devils that come up to earth from hell. End of chapter 4